We're going to be looking at Jonah. We're coming to a close, uh, the fourth chapter. We have this message and next week's. And then we've concluded with Jonah. So today, please look with me to Jonah chapter 4. And we'll be reading from verses 5 to 8. Verses 5 to 8, Jonah chapter 4. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. And so the Lord designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day. It attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. We ask for your guidance, O Holy Spirit, so that once again Christ would be exalted in our midst. We ask for ears that are attentive, hearts that are opened, Remove any cobwebs that we may have in our minds and allow the truth of your word to reign supreme in our lives. And this we pray for your name's sake. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. In reading the letters to Timothy, written by Paul, also known as the pastoral letters, you quickly understand how Paul repeatedly warned Timothy to be on guard against the pitfalls of ministry. The ministry has its joys and favor of God on it, of course, but it is a path marked with dangers. And that is true even of the Christian life, but even more so with regard to those who are in the ministry. And for this reason, Paul writing to Timothy admonishes him with these words. And I've often shared these very words with those that I've trained in the ministry over the years. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Another version says, Pay close attention or take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Take heed. Pay close attention. Be diligent. If the servant of the Lord fails to be vigilant over his life, he will become a liability, a hindrance to God's people as well as to the advancement of the kingdom. Now, this doesn't in any way 
stop God's purposes, but it does put a hamper on people when they start considering the church. And today, for example, the church has a black eye because of Christian Christians and many times leaders, pastors, who have failed to take heed to their lives and to their doctrine. And Paul knew this firsthand. He was too aware of the dangers associated with ministry. And so in writing to the Corinthians, he speaks in these terms. Therefore, I run in such a way as not to run aimlessly. I box in such a way as to avoid hitting air. But I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And many ministers have been disqualified. Disqualified doesn't mean they lose their salvation, but they disqualify themselves from ministry. They disqualify themselves in the sense that they lose credibility. And there's people who have disqualified themselves with their immoral living as pastors and continue to be on the airwaves or on TV preaching the gospel. And there are people listening to them. It's really odd to see all of this. It's a time that is really unusual to live in. And they're really disqualified for the ministry. They take their sin very lightly. They just say, oh, forgive me, and they keep going without really paying attention to the harm that they've done to the church. Others have committed other kinds of sins. They've hurt the gospel in other ways. They've disqualified themselves from serving. And so Paul is aware of this. There are areas in our lives as believers, and even more so for pastors and servants of the Lord, that need to be monitored carefully, regularly, diligently, closely. Through prayer, confession, strict discipline, mutual accountability, we learn to temper our bodies, to make our bodies our slaves so that they don't end up having the control of our lives. They remain and must remain slaves, using Paul's words. And so in today's message, we get a window into the life of Jonah. And though this servant was God's servant, we see that he lacked this discipline in his body, and therefore was not a slave in that sense, or the body, rather, was not a slave to him. So let's consider the areas where Jonah's desires took over, and let's see what we can learn from his shortcomings. He was still God's servant. God still rewards him, but he did fail, and we're going to see that today. So we can be on guard when it comes to our own lives. First, we see in verse 5 that he was more concerned with his reputation than with God's name. More concerned with his reputation than God's name. In verse 5 we read, Then Jonah left the city. He sat down east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in 
the city. Unusual behavior. So as I said two weeks ago, he preached the message of warning that God gave him, but he preached for one day, right? He warned the inhabitants of Nineveh just for one day. So it was a half-hearted warning, if you would. Then went outside of the city to the east of it, made himself a shade, and then just waited. As if he was watching TV. Why did he take this posture? Deep down, Jonah wanted to see the city destroyed and its people annihilated because they were evil people. And Jonah was, you could say, vindictive and more than anything else. And that's true in one way because he did, was hurt in some ways. You don't know how, but his people were hurt. The Israelites were hurt, that's for sure. However, there's more to it than that. Jonah eventually would have had to return to his homeland. And in his homeland, in Israel, he would have had to face his countrymen and tell them how God spared Nineveh, how God spared the Assyrians, their enemies, and that he was used by God to spare Nineveh. That would have been like a slap in their face, a slap given by Jonah himself, the prophet, and so he was concerned about that. Can you imagine how the Israelites would have reacted in knowing that their prophet, the servant that lived in Israel, used by God to bless Israel, was used of God to spare their enemies? That would have been considered just a real slap, as I said earlier on, of just a humiliating act. So Jonah was concerned about his reputation. Yes, more than he was with God's name. Our reputation can easily get in the way as we seek to do God's will. And uh, there are examples in Scripture of people who were concerned about how people viewed them. And, you know, we always uh, are concerned about how people see us. It's uh, part of our DNA. I mean, that's the popularity of Facebook, right? Or especially Facebook or Instagram and the other social medias where our image is portrayed. You know, <clears throat> we all want others to know where we're vacationing, what food we're eating, uh, what we're celebrating and all this because we want people to see that we're having a great time, that we're enjoying our moment and we want people to know that, right? That's, that's part of our DNA. But when this comes into conflict with God's will, who do we favor? God or ourselves? What do we put on the pedestal? Our reputation or God's name? And here it came into contrast for Jonah. Look at King Saul as an example. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he started off well. Eventually, though, he messes up. But this is how he started to mess up. He started to mess up because on one occasion, Samuel the, the, the priest and prophet was delayed. And there was an, a war that was about to break out, and and he needed to bless the people. So there had to be a sacrifice and there had to be the blessing. And Samuel was nowhere around. So what does Saul do as a king? He offers a sacrifice and he, and he blesses God's people with that sacrifice. And then finally Samuel comes around. He goes, what did you do? Because that act, that task of offering the sacrifice was reserved exclusively for the priests. 
no king, no layman of any sort, no matter how good of a man he was, was allowed to do that. And Saul is rebuked before the people, before his generals and all the army. And, and so how does he take this? Well, look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. And then Saul said, I've sinned. Does he stop there? No. But please, honor me now before the elders of my people and before all Israel. <laughs> what, what is that? I've sinned. I've sinned. Please make me look good. And go back with me, because Samuel had turned his back and was walking away, so that I may worship the Lord, your God. I've sinned, but please honor me. Saul is supremely concerned about how he looks, about his reputation. Now, had he said, I've sinned, and stopped there, that would have been great, but he doesn't do that. He goes on. Please honor me. What did David do when confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet? A sin that was, in our eyes, far worse. Right? Adultery, murder, cover-up. You know, it's the makings of a good movie. Everything you want in a movie, it's found in that story right there. What does he do when Nathan confronts him in front of his um, entourage in the court, the royal court? David says these words, I sinned against the Lord. Stop. Please help me save my, king, my kingdom. Help me save my throne. He doesn't say that. Please make me look good. <laughs> no, he didn't say that at all. Jonah was concerned about how he would look in the eyes of his fellow countrymen. For Jonah, his standing among his people mattered a great deal. Now, of course it matters what our friends and family say, but it must not matter above what God says. People make serious mistakes when they're more concerned about what others say. This faulty perspective severely handicapped his view of God's name and caused them to give greater importance to what the people would see him as people would see him rather. During his earthly life, when Jesus was ministering to his people, the people praised Jesus initially, not at the end, but initially they praised him. They saw him as their solution to their problems. He was healing, he was multiplying bread, he was casting out demons, giving sight to the blind. What's there not to like? No one ever spoke like this man. He does everything well. But it says in John's gospel, specifically in John chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus, look what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Right? They believed in what he was claiming as they observed his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, notice these words, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and because he did not need anyone to testify about 
mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. He knows our hearts. He knows that today we'll praise someone and then we'll tear him down. He knows that today someone can be your friend and tomorrow he can turn against you. Jesus knew that people were fickle. Unless God changes our hearts, we're fickle towards God. Oh yes, I need you, I need you, I need you. But once I have what I have, I'll just keep a safe distance. That's how we are. Unless the Lord changes us. Now, Jesus was not like Jonah. Jonah wanted the support and the, the uh, favor of his countrymen. But Jesus wasn't preoccupied with what people thought about him. He was there to please the Father. And many times, when he pleased the Father, he displeased everyone, including his own disciples, for that matter. Jonah was so worried about his fellow countrymen and what they would say about him that he had put his reputation on a pedestal. Tomorrow, you're, uh, today rather, you're a hero, and tomorrow, you are a loser if you put people on a pedestal and their opinion of you. God is the only one that we should please. Jonah should have checked his heart and beat this flaw in his heart, like we all need to, into pulp, black and blue, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Secondly, he was more concerned with his comfort than the salvation of the lost. In verse 6, so the Lord designated a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. It's interesting. You'll find this word that God designated repeatedly. It's a, it's a recurring expression. God designated a storm. God designated a whale or a, a sea creature. I apologize. It's not a whale. God designated this, uh, this plant. Finally, it designates a worm. He designates a scorching wind. These are expressions that occur repeatedly over the, in the book of Jonah. So while waiting for the city, to what would happen to the city, Jonah built himself a shade, but it was, I guess, a, a riffraff type of thing. But then God allows this plant to grow, and it was a, a beautiful plant that covered everything, and the sun couldn't penetrate, and he was just overjoyed with that blessing. And God does that in our lives. He brings in moments of joy. But as we sing many times, God gives and God takes away. And in Jonah's life, God gave, and then God gave a nice worm, and God took it away. Jonah's twisted happiness is not uncommon among uh, humanity. Many Christians themselves are extremely happy over a pay hike, over winning the lottery, a dream vacation, whatever it may be. It's not that some things we cannot be overjoyed with. We cannot be happy. That's not what God's Word is saying. But when we're more concerned about getting these things, temporal blessings, and we lose sight of the eternal blessings, then we start looking at these as insignificant because the enemy has bewitched us into thinking that these are far more important. 
This is the sad state of many Christians. So we need to look at someone who was different. We, look, we need to look at Jesus, the other Jonah. In him we see someone that's completely different. One day he's sitting at a well. He's in Samaria. This, this, is, an, this is an unsafe area, if you would, for a Jew. And he's sitting at a well and he's conversing with a woman. The disciples had gone shopping. I don't know where, but they went shopping. They got bread. And they came back with what they needed groceries, and they're looking at Jesus talking to a woman, and then talking to a Samaritan woman in Samaria. And they said, this is not good. doesn't look good. What is Jesus doing? Doesn't he realize that this is a Samaritan woman? And they don't know what to do, and he says, maybe he should eat. <laughs> he hadn't eaten for quite a while. In John chapter 4, we read, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The disciples were trying to get Jesus to eat to make him feel okay, to make them feel comfortable, right? When we eat, we're satisfied, we're comfortable, we feel okay. But Jesus, on the other hand, drew more satisfaction from seeing this Samaritan woman who was lost, who was a, a, a stain on the Samaritan society because of her multiple marriages, taking her, bringing her into the kingdom of God, and that gave him full satisfaction. His comfort, personal comfort, his personal needs were secondary. Yes, Jesus ate. Yes, Jesus drank water. Yes, Jesus enjoyed others' company. But his first comfort, his main satisfaction came from doing God's will. In Jonah, we have instead a man who draws satisfaction from a plant, from shade. Because that's what was needed at that moment. And yet, he found no satisfaction in seeing an entire city coming to God. He was upset. How can one be so twisted? Doesn't God want us to enjoy the good things in life? Well, Paul gives an answer to that. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, what does God do? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we have food, we have shelter, we have family, whatever riches we have, whatever blessings, these we enjoy, knowing that their source is from God. But God is free to give, and God is free to take away. I do not have everything I'm having now. Tomorrow my health may fail. And I will not be able to do what I am doing today. Just today, two days ago, I found out that someone we know quite well passed away. And um, he had been um, fighting several diseases throughout his last few years. And some of you may know him, Pat Manna. He woke up the other day, got out of bed, had a heart attack, and just fell to the ground. Right? And um, that's what I'm saying. We, could not, we don't know tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. Thank God he was a faithful servant of the Lord. 
So while we have these good things, we must not set our hearts on them. We must not be overjoyed with them. We enjoy them, we're happy, we thank God, but our real joy is in Christ alone. And in that way, we are doing what Paul is saying. Enjoy the Lord more than anything else. Jonah was overjoyed with a plant. And so we need to look at ourselves and say, what is our plant? What is it that we really want that gives us that comfort, that, that shade, that makes us feel good, that God can take away right away? Are we paying closer attention to ourselves, as Paul reminded Timothy? Or are we carelessly following the world's enthusiasm over the different plants, over the different blessings, temporal blessings that we have here in our earthly journey? The other day I was watching the reaction of one person who had just won millions of dollars with his Lotto Max ticket. And uh, he was really overjoyed. Overjoyed because now I could do everything I want to do, he says. And he could not hide his happiness. And he was overjoyed over something that was temporal. And that's okay when we don't know our riches in Christ. But when we've discovered our riches in Christ and how really God went out of his way by sending his son to make us rich, he became poor so that we could become really rich. And we join in that happiness and we struggle to understand this other joy. That means, do we really understand how rich we are? Oh, the Lord would give us eyes to see the lasting riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And that we, like our Lord, would say, I have another joy. I have another meat. I have another satisfaction that fills me far greater than any kind of satisfaction we could have here on earth. Thirdly, Jonah was more concerned about his feelings than truth. And this is an important one, so I want us to pay close attention to what I'm going to say here. In verse 8, and when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind. Sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And this is the second time he says this, by the way. So up to now, we've come across a Jonah that is self-centered at best. He is not a false prophet. He's not a Balaam. He's not someone who follows greed like Balaam did and misled the king and the people of God. Not, that's not Jonah. Jonah is a faithful servant of the Lord. But he is one who has the treasure of the office the treasure of God's blessings and presence in a weak shell. That's what it is. And this is true of all of us. James, writing about a great Old Testament prophet, says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So what's he saying? Elijah was weak. Elijah came short. He was discouraged. He was depressed at times. He was a true prophet nonetheless. And so was Jonah. Jonah was weak and, and faulty, but he was a true prophet. He belonged to the Lord. But he had a nature like ours. And that's why, as, as I said at the outset, we need to learn how to beat our bodies into subjection to, so that they are slaves and they do not run 
our lives, that our desires from the body do not dictate how we live our lives. And this is what we see in Jonah. We see the weakness of the flesh that impacts his ministry. Jonah realizes the city is spared. Forty days have passed. Nothing has happened. That's it. They're spared. They're going to continue. These are our enemies, and God is not punishing them. And Jonah gives vent to his feelings. And then what God does is something unusual. Instead of allowing that shade to continue so that he would at least find comfort while being angry, God takes away the plant, this beautiful plant that was providing shade by allowing this worm to devour it, and then sends this scorching east wind, the kind of weather we have today, but multiplied a a few degrees more, right? Like something like 50 degrees, you know. I heard the other day something unusual about a bear that uh, entered a car because he was able to smell food and then died in the car because it was unable to get out. It was like 65 degrees in the car. So imagine that kind of a weather. He's about to die. He's angry. He's frustrated. And God even takes away the plant. No more comfort. And he just lets out his, his feelings. I'd rather die. Just take me home. He's upset. Jonah gives a lot of room for his feelings. Now, I'm not sure if Jonah stayed in this frame of mind. We don't know because God's word doesn't say. It ends in an unusual way, and we're going to see this next week. But definitely he felt like a loser. He felt angry, and he felt miserable. Now, we live at a time when feelings are given a lot, a lot of attention. And more than at any other time, I believe. Uh, Here's what one author wrote in regard to feelings. You can see from what he says that this is a widely held belief about the importance of feelings. He writes, do you struggle with honoring, notice the words he uses, honoring and embracing your emotions? I know I do, as do many of us, he goes. I also find it challenging to acknowledge that my feelings matter just as much as anyone else's. While I don't tend to hold back from sharing my feelings and opinions and desires, I have learned from other people that I can talk too much about situations. What's underneath my talk is that I have deep fear. My feelings and desires are not as important and I'm not sharing them as other people are. It's been humbling to come to this realization about myself. It has also made me understand how important it is to live my life knowing that what I feel is just as important as anyone else's. I used to think that honoring our feelings was selfish, self-absorbed, even arrogant, but it's not. Now Jonah was feeling awful, can't deny that. For many reasons, not only was the plant destroyed, but he was upset because Nineveh is spared and he's thinking about going back to his homeland. He's got to tell everyone, this is what happened and God used me for this and it's embarrassing. He's angry. He's upset. I imagine someone going up to Jonah that moment and saying, Jonah, you have every right to feel the way you feel. You, you, you do. Go ahead. Feel 
Make sure you honor your feelings. Embrace those feelings. Really? But that's what we do today. We do that with a whole bunch of feelings that, come, that arise from different scenarios. Now, I'm not saying at times you don't have feelings about a situation we find very difficult. I, I'm not. For example, death. We grieve when someone passes. Right? This family that just lost a, a, a dear dad, a grandfather, they're grieving. But what is going to help them in their grief? It's not just feelings. It's knowing something more than feelings. It's knowing truth. The truth is that we do not mourn, we do not grieve like those without hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Truth is the anchor when our feelings are running amok. But if we just give way to feelings and honor our feelings and put our feelings on a pedestal, what is happening is that we're misplacing our importance on the wrong thing. Instead of the emotions or the feelings, we should be placing importance on truth. Truth will help me to weather the feelings. Now, didn't Jonah know the truth? Didn't he know that God is a merciful God? Didn't he know that God's desire is that no one perishes? Didn't he know that God rejoices over one that repents rather than the 99 that have no need of repentance? He knew these truths. But at that moment, his judgment was so clouded that his feelings were vented. Now, that doesn't mean that he stayed that way. We have no clue. If you look, if, there, if you go read until the end of the chapter... It seems as though he stays in that frame of mind. Because as I said before, Jonah is a picture of Israel. Right? The older brother, the younger brother are Gentiles. And the older brother, the Jews, are unhappy that the Gentiles are being received by God. That's the picture. That's the parable, the illustration. And so Jonah really is a microcosm of what there is in the macro in Israel. Jonah depicts that unhappiness, that frustration with God, that anger with God. But I'm using it also for us as an application. When we are experiencing certain feelings, we cannot just stay there and park our lives with our feelings and let the feelings just run amok and continue in that state of mind. A child does that. A child just lets go and lets his feelings take over. But the more we become familiar with God's word and his promises and the truth of what he says, the more our feelings come under control. They're reined in, right? They're not governing. They're not directing our lives. They are brought in so that the truth of God prevails and, in the, and we can make wise decisions. We can speak differently. There have been marriages that have fallen apart because the husband and the wife were both letting their feelings run amok and instead of one saying, I'm going to let truth take control, they both let their feelings run amok and then they start clashing and the clash continues for a long time until it becomes toxic to stay together. Feelings have their place 
but they must be subject to truth. I remember listening to Alistair Begg, a pastor who happened to be visiting another city, and he went to a church that Sunday morning and um, somewhere in the U.S., and anyways, finally gets to the church, he sits down with his wife, and the song leader goes to the front, and um, he asks everybody, so how do you all feel, right? And Alistair says to himself, how do I feel? Well, I didn't have a good night's sleep, and I'm in comatose state, really. I'm tired. I just had to battle traffic to get here. It's hot. The air conditioning is not working well. And I'm not feeling that great. And I'm sure if you ask the guy next to me, he's probably not feeling that great either. And I'm sure if you ask him and her, who's feeling great? I mean, feelings are so fickle. What I need to hear is not how I feel. What I need to hear is truth. That's what I need to hear. Alistair Begg shared that, and it was, it was remarkable. Because when you hear truth... Truth calms feelings. Truth gives clarity to our thinking. Truth allows us to make decisions that are wholesome. When we're following, following feelings, that's not the case. And so we have here someone who is venting, though we thought he had repented while he was in the belly of the sea uh, creature, when we see him coming out, his real colors come out, his real intentions come out, and instead of resting on the truth of God's mercy, the truth of God's goodness, the truth that he is a merciful God, that he desires people to repent, he is frustrated and angry. For this reason, when writing to Timothy, Paul says this. In pointing out these things, and he's been pointing out several responsibilities that Timothy had to carry out. In pointing out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ, constantly nourished. Notice, notice the word nourished here. Nourished on the words of the faith and of good doctrine. Now, when you look at your life, do you see your life more as an emotional roller coaster or is it more of a stable movement along the tracks of truth. That's what you need to determine. If truth is subject to your feelings, then the truth is not setting you free. Your feelings are holding you in bondage. If instead your feelings are subject to truth, the truth will set you free, as Jesus says. Because that's what truth does. Only truth can set you free. If feelings could set us free, and most people today and in most songs today, they talk about their feelings. They talk about, they talk about their feelings, whether they're angry, whether they're happy, whether they're feeling what they feel for a girl, what they feel for this guy. It's all feelings. Every, every song is about feelings. And no song is regarding truth. The only songs that you will find regarding truth are doctrinal songs. Even in the church, you have a lot of songs that focus on feelings. Those songs don't help as much as the doctrinal ones that speak of truth because they nourish us. The words of faith nourish us. And notice, the words of faith and of good doctrine. 
you, the ones you've been following, he says. I want you to pass that on to others. Think of Paul for a moment. He's imprisoned in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It was the worst kind of prison you can think of. It was a dungeon. Sometimes they were so overcrowded that the Romans, instead of killing them one by one, would just open this floodgate and allow the sewage water to come in and just kill them all. That's the kind of prison it was, the Mamertine prison in Rome. And he knew he was going to die. And yet, as he writes his second letter to Timothy, you do not sense defeat, you don't sense discouragement. Why? Because Paul was so anchored in truth. He would not let feelings of fear or feelings of discouragement or of unworthiness or abandonment. He said, everyone has abandoned me. They've deserted me. Why? Because to be associated with Paul was dangerous. And you don't sense discouragement or fear in his words, in his letters, right? Because he was so anchored in the truth. Feelings play a role, but they need to be subject to the truth that has been revealed to us. So here are the three areas where we need to learn to beat our body, to make it our slave, or using Paul's words, to beat our body black and blue. First, our reputation. What people think of us, what they will say about us. We need to die to that. We need to be Christ-centered to the point that we need to be worried about what God says about us. Right? As someone rightly said, when you play to the audience of one, the applause never ends. Right? Who's the audience of one? It's our Lord. Please the Lord, even if others speak ill of you. Secondly, the... Uh, our, our, the, the second area we need to put to death is our overjoy with comfort, our passion for comfort. We live in a comfort-driven society. There's no question about it. We have a lot of more creature comforts than any other civilization that's ever lived uh, in the history of mankind. We have air conditioning. It's a creature comfort. And coming in this place without air conditioning would have been a real challenge for us. We know that. But this is the the thing that we need to ask ourselves. Will I be governed by the desire for comfort? Will that be my idol? Or will I, like the Lord Jesus Christ, learn to beat that into submission, make that part of my life a slave, so that I will be able to serve God's kingdom for his sake, for his glory. As Christ said, he said, my meat, my satisfaction... I feel full when I do the Father's will. That's more important than simply having comfort in our lives. Thirdly, our feelings. Do we put them on a pedestal? Or are we learning to bring them under, to make that part of our lives a slave, knowing that truth is far more important than feelings? Look at our Lord, and with this I close. In our Lord, we see someone who was not concerned about his reputation, but he made himself of no reputation. Think about that. He destroyed his reputation in order to bring us back to the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Who would do that? He definitely did not seek his comfort. He said, birds have nests and the foxes have holes. I don't even have a place to lay my head. 
He didn't seek his comfort. He endured the most horrific death in order to save us. Unworthy sinners deserve judgment. And lastly, he never let his feelings take control. Never once do we see the Lord's feelings take control. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we get a picture of his fear. He sweats drops of blood. He is in great angst. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says that he was in terror. And in that moment, he cries out, not my will, but your will be done. The Lord perfectly brought into submission those areas of his body that need to be made a slave. Now in Jonah, we have a man who's weak. We have a man who fails. It's okay. We failed. We fail. But we can learn. We can grow. Christ is our example. Then we have men like Paul and, and, uh, and, and others like him that are also an example to us so that we can be strong in the will of God. Thank God that Christ was fully God-centered. He is the true Jonah who took delight in doing God's will and bringing us to the Father as children of God. Aren't you glad he did? Where would we be today if Christ had failed like Jonah? We would be lost. Do you not rejoice in that? That's something worth rejoicing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the true Jonah. He did not rejoice to see me destroyed, knowing full well the evil of my heart. He did not sit on his throne and watch from a distance like Jonah did, hoping that I would be totally destroyed for my wickedness and my sin. But he left his throne and came down. And he took the cross. He embraced it. He was judged in my stead. That is the truth of the gospel that sets us free. And that is the truth that we want to repeat to ourselves every single day. Lord, I pray that you would grant us grace so that we would love your name far more than our reputation, that we would love doing your will far more than our own personal comfort, and that we would love, Lord, your truth and not give way to our feelings. We can't do this on our own. There is no way. But with you, Lord, with your grace, there's much we can accomplish according to the power that is at work in us, doing that which pleases you. So do it in every one of us as your children. And then use us to bring your precious truth to others who are in darkness. Glorify your name through our lives, we pray, in our homes and wherever we may be. And this we ask in the precious and glorious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.